Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. John Wood Jr. Um, is our guest this week, and he's a national ambassador for Braver Angels. Used to be Better Angels, but now I think we need to be brave in order to have uh, the kind of conversations that they have over there at Braver Angels. Um, he is also a former congressional candidate. He's a musician. Um, he's a general writer, thinker, speaker. Um, and how I became familiar with John's work is I once did um, one of his Braver Angels events, and so I kind of became familiar with the organization. And then I heard him speak at a Manhattan Institute event where he had the unenviable job of following up um, on um, Glenn Lowry's talk that he gives about Black patriotism. Um, he's given it in a variety of, of kind of um, venues, but he gave it at the Manhattan Institute. And I think uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast for longer um, knows that this definitely qualifies as a kind of anti-woke podcast. I am an anti-woke person. Um, but John is really the first person who really managed to give me, um, if not actual sympathy, but at least more of an understanding um, about how some people might find this mm -hmm. ideology um, to really fall in line with how they've experienced the world. Um, it, it gave me a little bit more of an insight into how people who with whom I vociferously disagree think. So um, I'm really, really happy to have you on the podcast, John. Uh, welcome to High Noon. Thank you so much. I just love the introduction <laughs> to this uh, to this show, your opener. It's so, it sets the mood so well. Uh, but thank you, Inez. It's really great to be here with you. Um, so I just want to ask you, uh, start out by asking you a little bit about how you grew up, because um, I know that intersectional is sort of a, a buzzword now in our discourse, but you truly qualify as intersectional in the deepest sense. You you really grew up with such a variety of influences around you, um, whether that's, that's geographic or um, racial or cultural class-based, like you really grew up at the intersection of all of these different um, kind of, of uh, American strands of life. So could you just tell us a little bit about uh, how you grew up and, and how you came to sort of the, the the place that you find yourself today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it is uh, true. My background is sort of like hyper intersectional just in the, you know, just in the technical sense that, you know, I've got a lot of different, I guess, uh, streams of American identity and cultures sort of crisscrossing and producing me. Um, now, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm biracial. Some people like the term, some people don't, I guess, but you know, that's not too unique in and of itself, except that, you know, a lot of, uh, multiracial, you know, biracial folks, let's say you're black and you're white, um, have parents who may be of different races, but still come from the same sort of socioeconomic or political or cultural sort of background, right? That's very much not quite the case with me. So, you know, my mother is a liberal black Democrat from inner city Los Angeles, uh, was born in 1963. Um, you know, grew up in, uh, you know, not, not totally destitute circumstances, but, you know, from a, from a much more modest background and with a lot of relatives who, you know, were much more hard up, uh, living, you know, living inner city life, uh, inner city sort of poverty, so on and so forth. My father um, is uh, a white man from uh, Tennessee, born in 1950, who was raised in great wealth um, after moving from the South to Los Angeles. My grandfather uh, uh, owned the biggest independent record label in America. It was called Dot Records back in the late 50s um, uh, into the early 
1960s. Uh, my father uh, is a Republican, uh, conservative, uh, Trump supporter, um, and um, was very much the traditionalist in our household growing up. He wasn't a Republican back then. He was more of a Kennedy Democrat. And he was somebody who, as time went along, felt that the, the Democratic Party left him behind. Uh, but even though, for the most part, he didn't grow up in the South, he's always been a Southerner by roots, and he raised me with a great deal of sort of you know nostalgia for the volunteer state. You know, I grew up with stories, you know, Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett and you know the Alamo and so on and so forth. And uh, I had all of that sort of swirling about in my upbringing. And I tell people that I had three native environments growing up. Uh, I, uh, on the one hand, um, on weekends would visit my, uh, uh, some of my mother's relatives in South Central Los Angeles. I'd jump on the bus with my, uh, with my uh, uncle who was only a couple years older than I was more like a cousin or sibling, but got used to sort of traveling around uh, South Central Los Angeles, got used to the idea that, you know, there are certain streets we, uh, didn't want to get off on certain neighborhoods we didn't want to walk down if we had the wrong color shoelaces on because we might not come out the other side of them um got used to seeing life on that sort of side of the tracks then on holidays we'd go and visit my uh my father's parents my grandparents who at that time lived in la jolla california which is an affluent coastal community in san diego um they lived in a multi-million dollar house with a view of the ocean a few blocks down the street from mitt romney's house the one with the car elevator that we used to talk about in 2012. And, uh, but then from day to day, I grew up in multicultural, middle-class, uh, uh, suburban uh, Culver City, California, in LA, going to what, uh, what I understand is the fourth most diverse school district in America. And so, you know, my kids, my uh, friends growing up uh, when I was a kid were, you know, Korean and Jewish and Indian and Pakistani and, you know, Black and Latino and so forth. Um, and so I didn't travel a lot geographically uh, as a kid, but socioeconomically, uh, I was all over the map and didn't quite appreciate how maybe, you know, uh, uncommon that breadth of sort of, you know, cultural experience was uh, for a young person until I got a bit older. But yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a bit of background in terms of <laughs> how I came up anyway, uh, from a cultural vantage point. I mean, it, it makes sense to me that coming from that diverse, genuinely diverse background um, that would inspire you to, to do what you have done with Braver Angels, which is really because I, I think often or too often when we talk about, you know, sort of reaching across the aisle or having these discussions, actually what it tends to be is kind of a dumbed down or milk toast or, or sort of turn down the passion dial or um, on you know, what people actually believe. So people, I, I find in a lot of these conversations, people are, even if unintentionally, being a little bit dishonest about what they believe because they're trying to kind of be nice about it and and um, and not to offend other people. And that kind of discourse I don't have, you know, a lot of use for um, because I don't think it is actually coming uh, from a place of honesty. And I don't, I don't think that that's really productive. Like if you're not getting what people... Um, really think, then you're not really advancing anything. Um, so I've always chosen, as Dennis Prager says, clarity over agreement. Right. Um, but I, I think one of the things that makes the way that you are able to cross into these different spaces unique is that you are doing it from a perspective of really trying to get at the truth, but 
really to understand how other people could conceivably be trying to get at that same truth and come away with radically different sort of premises or have radically different premises from from how they see the world. Um, do you want to give maybe the the slightly shorter version of um, the response that you gave to Glenn Lowry when he was um, laying out this case that, you know, to me is a, a sort of conservative and um, was was sort of would literally brought a tear to my eye, right, about about yeah. the case for patriotism, um, even for uh, black Americans who have, you know, I think inarguably uh, been left out of a lot of the things for uh, that made America great for many, many, many decades, um, centuries. So he made this great case for for patriotism um, in black America. And you gave a kind of not a rebuttal, but um, an appeal for understanding of why perhaps some people might not feel that kind of patriotism um, about their country. Do you want to maybe lay out some of the case that you made? Yeah, by all means. Um, so yeah, Glenn laid out his case for black patriotism, you know, a case that I think I would make as well. And you know, it's it's one that taps into the reality of the fact that if you look across the broad arc of American experience, an American project that with respect to the, you know, the the the, the typical sort of black experience in America begins with slavery is one that evolves over the course of time into one that graduates from emancipation to a fuller realization of equality under the law into a society in which it is evident and clear to any and everybody, or at least ought to be, that an African-American, a person of color, any person of any race uh, in American society, but certainly Black people, uh, can achieve the very heights of success in American society. I mean, from the presidency of the United States to being represented among the ranks of millionaires and billionaires and elite artists and celebrities, um, and that the genuine struggle um, through uh, oppression, through inequality across the arc of American history, has not prevented us from coming closer and closer uh, to living up to the values that were articulated in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights, right? Um, and that it is those values that truly characterize the fundamental character of American society and that we can see expressed in the larger uh, trajectory of African-Americans in the context of American life uh, towards uh, full equality and, you know, a present reality in which if you if you live life in the right way, right, uh, if you are disciplined, if you work hard, if you work hard, if you have uh, the commitment to family values that allow you to support um, those nearest to you and take responsibility for yourself, your family, and your community, there's no cap on what you can do in American life. I mean, you know, Glenn has his own way of making this case, but he makes the case, and he makes it well, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an overview that I agree with. Um, now, at the same time, you know, uh, my remarks were calibrated, as you said, to trying to illuminate how it is that that portrayal of the Black American experience ultimately does not necessarily emerge as persuasive in the context of the actual experiences of many African Americans in this country to this day. 
for reasons that are both historical and contemporaneous. And so let me try and lay out the case succinctly. Um, it is true, you know, that over the course of American history, um, you have all of these triumphs and accomplishments towards greater equality, greater realization of the American dream, uh, which make, you know, the United States of 2021 um, much different than the United States of 18, of 1860, right, or of, seven, or of 1619, let's say, prior to the formation of the United States. Um, and yet, what you have to take into account when we look at the sort of experience of, let's say, kind of the, the, the you know, the median or that large portion of African-Americans who fall below sort of, you know, some median line in the American experience is the fact that over the course of history, when we look back over time, we have an experience that we're trailing behind us as African-Americans for many of us that, you know, yes, goes from slavery, goes to, you know, Jim Crow segregation, Klan terrorism in the South and so forth. But that even coming out of the civil rights movement opens up into an experience of Black American life just over the last 50 years or so that for millions of Black Americans, really for, you know, arguably, I would say, you know, sort of a, a solid third of African-Americans who have some deep and consequential relationship to poverty, to lack of social mobility, have found themselves in this vantage point of being a part of a Black underclass that has existed as a either a majority or a significant minority of the whole Black population from the advent of slavery all the way up to the present day. And so let's start with the civil rights movement. When you look at the triumphs of the civil rights movement, they were real and they were meaningful. But Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who is you know, my great role model in, in American moral activism, um, was a leader who came from the South, who was in most of his career directly addressing the problems of Jim Crow segregation in the South um, at a time when the majority of African-Americans in American life um, were already living outside of the South in urban communities that were not affected by Jim Crow segregation anyway, right? Where the right to vote was something that, yes, had been depressed through much of American history, but, you know, by the time of the Voting Rights Act had been relatively more, more secured. So, and yet who were suffering in tremendous poverty. And so when the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed, nothing materially changed. The millions of African-Americans who remained in poverty, uh, who remained segregated by virtue of redlining and federal government housing policies in slum communities and ghetto communities that were underserviced, dealing with failing school districts, lack of economic opportunity. The country celebrated this triumph over the explicit Jim Crow racism that existed in the South. But after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the passage of those acts, life did not materially change for the majority of African-Americans, except in as much as economic opportunities continued to deteriorate and disappear. You had manufacturing jobs, which had been the primary vocational sort of, you know, lane for many 
people trying to make it in the black middle class and the black working class disappear overseas. You had immigration, which which uh, subverted black economic opportunities in the agricultural and the service sector. Uh, then you had the influx of crack cocaine in a moment where the where the the welfare state had succeeded, you may say, the Great Society in eliminating starvation, but had also put African Americans in a situation to where they had very little in the way of economic opportunity, but access to a subsistence income that basically provided something of a capital base for the transforming of this drug substance, this illicit substance, uh, into a commercial product that suddenly financed the explosion of of the underground drug dealing industry, which in turn leads us into the phenomenon of mass incarceration, the police state response. And suddenly over the course of these decades, black Americans who had gone from slavery to Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and redlining and so on and so forth, who received no tangible benefit from the civil rights movement, now find themselves without economic opportunity still in many cases, locked into ghettos and, and urban slums. But now with the additional uh, plagues of, of, of drug pandemics, um, uh, in, in incarceration rates spiking across the 70s, across the 80s, and across the 90s. And you get to a point to where you see the incarcerated community balloon, balloon up to a population of a million strong. You see that a third of African Americans are living in poverty. You step back and you realize your average, your average, well, perhaps not average, but something close to, you know, again, a solid third of African Americans can look over this entire arc of the American experience and basically say to themselves that at no point have I seen the American dream materialize for me because so much of my experience has been defined by poverty, um, by violence, uh, and by a, an American narrative that is judging the Black experience according to the success of Oprah Winfrey when what it is she's done has nothing to do with the real opportunity that's available to me living in inner city Chicago, living in Detroit, living in South Central Los Angeles and parts of the rural South, right? Um, that's been the story for so many Black Americans. Now, you know, it's, it's also true that there's a Black middle class that became empowered after the civil rights movement that through affirmative action programs were brought into corporations, brought into university campuses, that was welcomed into Hollywood and, you know, the, the ranks of the professional, you know, sports leagues and so forth. Um, but that part of the black community is quite a bit smaller than this other part that I'm talking about, but it's the most visible part of the black community to most white Americans. And so I think that's where the disconnect comes in. And I realized that for myself at a certain point, because, you know, I had a black experience growing up, which was colored by nothing but opportunity, really. Um, but my wife's experience, she grew up in the Jordan Downs projects in Watts, was starkly different from my own. And at a certain point, I just started to realize that, you know what, I mean, I've got nothing to complain about in terms of how America has treated me as a black man. But my black American experience is not necessarily 100% typical, right? And so when we look at the anti-racist sort of urgency to just completely remake American life, yes, there's a lot of cynical misreading of history, I think that that's you know potentially fair to say. Um, there is a lot of intersection with perhaps sort of 
you know, leftist, socialist um, ideologies and kind of, you know, uh, social projects that seek to sort of co-opt some of that history, you might say, to make the case for the agendas that people are pushing in the academies and in different parts of the political landscape. But if you push all that away for just a moment, there is this real history of suffering and deprivation and marginalization in the Black experience in particular, which is widespread and that goes from before the founding of the country all the way up until now uh, in a way that has to be appreciated when you look at the way that, you know, many Black people responded in the aftermath of, let's say, you know, the killing of George Floyd and so forth. If we don't understand not just that history, but that contemporary reality, you know, we'll never understand why it is appeals to patriotism fall flat for people who feel that the American dream has never actually shown up in the context of their own experience. That's not as concise as I <laughs> should have made it, but but that's basically the case that I made. Um, you know, it strikes me for the second time listening to you make this case that it sounds quite similar to the the way that a lot of Trump voters, for example, in in the Rust Belt, belt they they perhaps would not attach this to America as a whole, but the disillusionment with the institutions, um, the feeling that the game has been rigged against them, um, and that the promise of, of, of sort of opportunity in America has been taken from them, um, it strikes me how similar that that kind of disillusionment really is. Um, how much of us do you think is more attached to class or economics than it is to race? And how much of it is unique to race? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great question because there is a necessary, I think, distinction to be made between class and race, right? In terms of what's really operating, um, especially at this present moment, you know, when it comes to the experiences of not just poor black people, but poor white people and others in America. And yet in the black context, you know, when you just take it in the stream of how people actually experience things uh, and how history connects one episode to the next, it can be a bit harder to differentiate it. So I would say that, yes, on, some, on a fundamental level, especially in 2021, this is sort of more of a class problem than a race problem. And anybody who is interested in diving deeper into that sort of analysis, I think would be well advised to read a book called The Declining Significance of Race by a scholar named William Julius Wilson, which I think was published in the early 80s. And in that book, um, William Julius Wilson makes the argument that up until about the time of the, you know, the, the high point of the civil rights movement, the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, that Black marginalization in America was primarily a function of racial oppression, but after that became more a function of class uh, and economic status. And he makes that case by saying that, one, racial oppression has always been motivated in American history in large part, you know, not just by, you know, social ideas of racial superiority or inferiority or cultural conflicts or, or what have you, but by economic interests, right? 
And he goes through this long history, which talks about many things, but one of the main things he focuses in on is the labor movement, the fact that African-Americans unable to access you know, higher education or even primary and secondary education uh, uh, for most of our history uh, were also locked out by segregation in the labor unions that would have provided opportunities for them to have achieved skilled and unskilled occupations. Uh, and that that was something that shifted as labor policies began to allow for the integration of the unions and then was accelerated as affirmative action uh, motivated you know, universities and corporations like to proactively go into black communities, opening up opportunities and recruiting people. And so those things, in addition to what happened with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, sort of created a landscape in which you had an emerging black middle class, as I said a moment ago, uh, and that black middle class, um, you know, gained uh, from those changes. However, you had another series of things that happened, wherein through redlining, um, through, again, I mentioned sort of federal housing uh, policies uh, that basically uh, created a situation in which you know, the FHA and these various programs were building white-only and black-only sort of housing projects. Black-only uh, black housing projects tend to be located in urban centers that people came to, uh, one, because they weren't able to move into integrated suburbs because of you know, redlining and, and, uh, and uh, policies that, that prohibited private sellers from selling to African-Americans as a consequence or as a condition of buying certain properties. So these housing projects are the only places Black Americans have to go, but they're also coming to these places because of industrialization, factories, so on and so forth. But as you cross into the 1970s, these major factories in inner cities wind up sort of collapsing or otherwise shipping their uh, stations of production into suburban areas and so forth, meaning job opportunities are leaving. At the same time, higher education, college degrees become necessary to moving up the ranks in corporations. And so as America's economy becomes more corporatized, you have affirmative action sort of selecting educated black people to rise in the ranks. But this happens at the same time that, again, through outsourcing, through immigration, through the sort of leaving of industrial opportunities away from inner city centers, you have Black Americans who see the jobs leaving even as they're coming, you know, as you're going from the 50s and then to the 60s and into the 70s. You've got some black Americans who are, you know, finding themselves climbing the opportunity in our, you know, corporations and higher levels of society. But while they are, those black people who are already poor stay poor, right? Um, because you don't have local economic opportunities. You don't have a pathway towards getting into college because everybody's not going to benefit from affirmative action. Everybody's not going to get a scholarship. And if your local school district is already at the bottom of the barrel, which so many of these were and are, then that's not going to give you a pathway towards getting out of where you live. And so 
if you were poor and black going into the 70s, you stayed poor and black, right? And your children would be poor, right? And that poverty would, would be a part of what defines their black experience going to the 80s and the 90s and even the 2000s until now uh, for so many. Because these basic dynamics that have capped social mobility in American life have not changed. Now, those dynamics exist for those poor white people too. And so that's what makes this a class problem that in many respects is universal across color lines, and we should treat it that way. But even in saying that, it is important to remember the fact that, you know, this mass incarceration phenomenon, this relationship between the police and the African-American community that, you know, gets set aflame anew through the advent of heroin and crack cocaine and in particular, you know, that also is coming on the heels of a history that's only five minutes older than that of racially motivated, you know, violence between law enforcement and Black Americans, yes, in, in the South and in rural areas, but also in cities as well, where police were, and I can, you know, I can point to my own Los Angeles and places where, you know, within living memory, I mean, I can talk to people, uh, you know, in Watts and South LA who remember that, you know, if you tried to move your family west across Crenshaw Boulevard, you couldn't do it because of redlining. And if you tried to move your family east into Southgate and Linwood uh, across the Alameda corridor, you'd get beat by the police if you just stepped foot into some of these communities. And there was no official Jim Crow, but nobody thought twice about the fact that this was the way the LAPD operated in those years. Well, you know, even as larger social attitudes shift a bit, um, you know, these these phenomenons are stitched right next to each other in what Black people are experiencing. So it's not as if there's some magic line that you cross, particularly as you're looking backwards in the Black memory, that says that, okay, this is the moment when racism disappeared, but classism or, you know, class immobility became worse. It's very hard to disentangle these things in terms of how people have actually lived that out, right? Um, I mean, I certainly believe that law enforcement is far less racist now than it's ever been in the history of American life. And, you know, there's a conversation to be had about the nuances of, of that, because uh, there are a lot of nuances there for better and for worse. Um, but if the point here is for us to understand where many Black people are coming from, then we have to understand the racial backdrop to the class dynamic even if we were going to speak as intelligently and effectively as we might uh, be able to speak to what I think is a fair description of black and white marginalization in America today as being more primarily a function of class than anything else in the present moment. So I agree with that distinction, but the history still matters. Um, you know, when you talk about it as one continuous experiment um, or, or experience rather, I, uh, and and being hard is being hard to disentangle some things. One one of the you know sort of breaks that I see um, in terms of some of the critiques is like even obviously going back to Frederick Douglass, but even even the more like I would say the sharper and and something closer to what you're saying critiques like let's say you know Langston Hughes, right? Um, it was never America for me, because um, which is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Mm -hmm it still seems like there was something that we had in common and that was the agreement that the American system had produced something remarkable worth wanting to buy into. 
Right. right? Um, and, and that's what I fear. And I guess coming back to your work with Braver Angels, um, where I fear that that kind of good faith conversation about how we can become a more perfect union truly uh, has broken down because you have now people uh, not just on the fringes, but in, in mainstream discourse, you know, writing at the New York Times and working at the highest echelons of the Democratic Party um, who don't believe there there's anything worthwhile to buy into, to participate in. Right. Even even if you think about that, it was never America for me. There's that unspoken in that poem. But I think um, very real acknowledgement that there is something great about the promise of America. Right. Yeah. Um, there is something wonderful about the American dream, the opportunities that were provided. And the critique is, you know, it is painful that America has not been for black Americans, or at least for many black Americans, what it has been. Um, not only to people, you know, whose families have been here forever, but from to immigrants all over the world who have been able to come here and and access that American dream. I, I wonder how we can have productive and good faith dialogue when we don't even have the baseline of of you know America is a good place. Um, just like that, there is something good in the American experiment what America's striving for and that what we need to do is try to add more people and make sure that more people have that experience in America, as opposed to critiquing the foundations of what has built this wonderful experience for so many people and peoples in America. Right. Yeah. Well, indeed. And, uh, and, you know, even Nicole Hannah Jones, I think would not say that the words of the declaration of independence are bad. I think what she would say is that they were a lie insofar as they were born out of hypocrisy, right? That, you know, and that it is America's hypocrisy and failure, right, to live up to these words and the fact that Thomas Jefferson himself was a slave owner and so forth that are more definitive of the American project itself than is the idealism that she purports to put forward in her founding documents and in the rhetoric of, you know, uh, so many of us up until can, now. Can I just yeah. briefly yeah. push back mm -hmm. on you? I'm not I'm sure not that's sure. how, at least that is not my understanding of how she sees it. And certainly that's not the understanding of, say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the seminal writing in cr the critical race theory, you know, branch, right? Um, you have critiques of, of liberalism qua liberalism. Um, no. Not just hypocrisy of failing to live up to that standard in the Declaration of Independence, but that that kind of neutral standard itself will always result in disparity and oppression, and that no. that standard itself must be blown up in order to provide opportunity um, for people of color, let's say, in America. I, 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 I don't know that I agree that Nicole Hannah jones would say that we, we just we were hypocritical in, in not upholding that promise for all Americans. Well, I think that the critique there with respect to liberalism would be that liberalism as a system of norms that purports to be a neutral kind of framework for operating a society and even for operating intellectually, in fact, is something that is 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 a masquerade for a real social program that is meant to perpetuate the racial, you know, the white supremacism that in fact was always the point behind the American project, right? So I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you on that. And when I said what I said, I'm pointing specifically to, to the phrases that you know, all men are born equal with certain inalienable 
certain inalienable rights. I think that Nicole Hannah-Jones would not take issue with those particular words from Thomas Jefferson as being moral statements, but I think that she would say that they were, in a sense, sort of, you know, I mean, what would you say, um, distractions or, or decoys sort of obscuring the fact that this larger program that comes behind it, the liberal program, if you will, is actually something, you know, that presents itself with high-minded humanism, but is meant to solidify and, and keep institutionalized uh, white supremacy, right? So I think that's, that's what, that's what I think I'm, I'm, I'm saying here. And so, you know, we can look at the critique of liberalism for a second, and I think pull some, pull some interesting kind of, you know, context from it, because there are, there are a number of things that are happening here. Let's take, let's, let's jump over to Nicole Hannah-Jones of the world, and actually just more broadly speaking, sort of like, you know, the Black middle class, the black, sort of the, the, the educated, the intelligentsia of black America and how it sort of interacts with kind of the academic, you know, left and so on and so forth here. Because on the one hand, I think that there is, if you look back over this history that I've sort of recounted, you know, um, you can see that there's a serious way in which the institutional language of American society is distorted at many points to say that, okay, you know, we're all made equal, but then you move to the Supreme Court and you have this idea of separate but equal, right? Which says that, okay, well, legalistically, we can separate the races, but still have them be, be equal. But the way it actually plays out in reality is that people are separated into geographic areas where they don't have as much opportunity as everyone else. They're subjected to all the manipulations and terrorisms that I just mentioned. And so you look at that and you say, well, wait a second, that's hypocrisy. Then you have this, and so there's legitimate pain in that kind of you know, background of experience. Then you have this other thing that's happened where I think that you've got a lot of African-Americans who've achieved social mobility in recent decades and who for most of American history, you know, Black people have had to sort of, when they have found their way into higher reaches of American society, fit into institutional cultures that have been predominated uh, by, by white people where there are certain norms established in terms of you know how we speak, how we conduct ourselves, so on and so forth, none of that is objectively uh, bad or anything like that. But now you have a moment where, particularly downstream of the Black Power movement, this idea that you know yes, black is beautiful, so on and so forth. And I want to celebrate my natural hair. I want to be able to to express kind of like you know the black uh, dialect and the way I grew up with it and so forth. You have people wanting to show up in different settings and have them reflect the Black culture that they feel has been sort of smothered and pushed down through most of American history. And so there are basically, what I'm saying, is middle class and upper middle class kind of problems, cultural frictions that are taking place within boardrooms, within universities, that wind up translating in some cases to the language of microaggressions, the language of privilege, so on and so forth. And really what a lot of that is, is, you know, not to minimize it, but a lot of that is people who are just finding themselves coming from different places culturally. 
And because these cultural frictions do take place generically against this larger backdrop of racial oppression, the two are equated. And suddenly, you know, if a boardroom policy says that I can't, you know, show up to work, um, you know, with cornrows in my hair or braids or something, because that's against some kind of, you know, company etiquette, you know, or, or you know, some sort of dress code or something like that, then all of a sudden, like, you know, this, this clearly ties in to, a, to the history of a country where I couldn't have gone into a whites-only restroom or I couldn't have gotten a loan from a bank because I'm Black. It's another thing you're putting on me as a marker of oppression because I'm Black. One thing I'd like to do is disentangle these two things because they're not the same, right? Um, while, on the other hand, still mentioning it to say that when you look at the critique of liberalism just top-down and just American institutional society as being defined in every nook and cranny by racial oppression, that's part of the honest place where some of that is coming from, right? I mean, there's the cynical part of it, which is, you know, there's money to be made and followers to be gained by just always pointing to racism. Booker T. Washington pointed this out, you know, generations ago that there are some black people who would never want the race problem to disappear because if it did, they'd be out of a job. That's that's perennially true. But this is the kind of thing that that, you know, makes this sticky and complicated um, because, you know, I can see what some of these folks are seeing when they say that the liberal project itself is tainted, I guess, by racism through and through, because really they're just kind of, to a certain degree, they're just equating it with with institutional cultures that were not, that for much of their history were actively pushing Black people out. And then even when they tried to bring Black people in, and this is where you get an Ibram Kendi saying that, you know, you're, you're racist if you, you know, if you, if you want to push people, you know, Black people out in terms of segregation, but you're also racist if you want to culturally improve Black people and so on and so forth. And, you know, he gives you these different versions of it where you might say for some people, it's like, well, you know, how do you win in either direction? But this is where this comes from, right? All of these different kinds of ways in which Black people feel like they don't fit in. Um, that, I think... I think has to be understood while also while also allowing for us to be able to say that, but at the end of the day, even while it is important for us to figure out how to understand and interact with each other culturally, we still have to fight for the value. We still have to fight for, for the foundations of a society that genuinely does at least strive to prize merit and character right, over any other sort of pre-existing condition of, of cultural or ethnic or class uh, identity, ultimately, you know, that we want to move towards a society where people are able to move up through the ranks on the basis of the value that they contribute back to society. And, you know, we can have all sorts of conversations about how we make recompense for prior injustices and for how we run our corporations and how we run our institutions to be more inclusive, to be more sensitive and so forth. But we can't allow ourselves to get to a place to where identity on its own becomes the thing that is the only sort of capital or coin by which we, you know, can advance in society or, or you know, make decisions as to how we run our society, that sort of 
attitude is never going to translate towards, uh, you know, a country that is able to maximize freedom and opportunity for, for everybody. So, you know, um, we've got to be able to do both of these things at the same time. And very, it, it's hard to do that because it's hard to even see, you know, where any legitimacy at all comes from in some of these social grievances that people have, unless you start to get a bit of a peek into, you know, just all of the, not just the rivers of oppression, but the tiny little rivulets of social isolation, right? That are traveling through kind of like cultural memory, right up to the point at which, you know, the girl sitting next to you in a university classroom who's there on a, you know, uh, on a uh, impressive scholarship refuses to stand for the for the Pledge of Allegiance or refuses to salute the flag um, because she still in her own mind is having to kind of, you know, connect the little sort of marks of social differentiation that she's experiencing day by day with the stories that her mother has told her and her grandmother and her grandfather has told her and the things and horrors that she's read about in history books and so on and so forth. So that's the, you know, the, the, the treacherous terrain that we're walking on you know, in a moment when more Black people are ascending through, you know, some of these, in, through the institutions of our society than has ever been the case before, you know, um, that's just the nature of the terrain, the nature of the project in some sense of defending liberalism in 2021 that I think, um, I think we would be well advised to take to heart. You know, what you're saying both gives me more understanding into where some folks are coming from, but also in a weird way makes me more pessimistic that it's ever going to be resolved, right? Because uh, the idea of, of sort of cultural memory within families um, giving you a particular perspective on on things that perhaps or perhaps even to the point of misunderstanding um, the people around you. First of all, you know, cultural clash in in terms of um, institutions is not new. Of every immigrant group has faced, you know, it's just not the exact same particularities. But every immigrant group has faced it, and sort of usually by the second or third generation, that you have people with feet in both worlds who are able to to go along in sort of mainstream American culture or corporate culture, and also in their home culture, and eventually everything kind of melts together in this this American melting pot. Um, but you know, it, it doesn't give me a lot of hope uh, because I, 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 I guess I think that even in my own experience, in terms of the stories that are told in my family, which are very different, they don't have anything to do with America, right? My my parents are immigrants, but um, you know, it, it it's very very difficult. It takes a very long time to kind of strain out uh, that that perspective that comes from. Um, and, and much of it's very valuable, right? Um, but, but that doesn't mean that it can't be um, a barrier to your own advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't. It doesn't mean that you don't develop cultural habits that are out of place um, in terms of of responding to people as though, like I don't know, for for perhaps um, you know, this is not even really particularly my background, but uh, you know, folks who came through. Uh, Ellis Island, um, whether they're Irish escaping from from British oppression or whether, you know, they were Jews escaping from pogroms in Russia and Ukraine, right? Um, a lot of those cultural behaviors then became detrimental and had to be overcome in America because they don't yield the same results, right? right. Um, they yield results that are actually actively detrimental to people when they 
act as though they are living on, you know, in Ukraine with the threat of pogroms, right, over mm -hmm. their head all the time. Um, so I, I guess it, it simultaneously makes me a little more skeptical that we can actually move forward in in any way if these kind of cultural hurts are um, maintained through family culture. It makes it really difficult to imagine how in the, you know, quasi near term, we can actually come to any kind of understanding about this project. And that's really what the American project demands of us, right? It's not that we we can't bump along as, as you know, different sort of um, strains of the American whole, but the American project really does demand of us that we commit to, because we are so diverse, because we come from so many different backgrounds, so many different places, so many different like experiences, and we don't have that like France has, right? Um, we don't have, first of all, an ethnic core in this country in any substantial sense. We never did, really, because despite the way that we talk about white people today, like we really didn't have the same kind of ethnic core that France or Germany had. Um, and and so we need we need our civic religion because mm -hmm. it's what we had in common with each other. Mm -hmm. That's that's what worries me so much about perhaps even an understandable reluctance to kind of adhere to that that um you know patriotic conception of the promise of america is that unlike i think in france or some other places um america really desperately needs that for us to be able to live alongside each other it seems to me mm, right look it's a it is um an uh fully understandable thing to be <laughs> worried and potentially pessimistic about because you know it, i i'm not sure any other country uh has ever i mean i'd have to think about it but you know i mean did rome have a phase like this rome never got to be a liberal democracy and so forth it had all sorts of different cultures underneath its empire but it maintained some you know stability uh, over the time that it did through force and enough of a laissez-faire kind of you know approach to governance that just basically allowed people to sort of you know hash it out between themselves as they all recognize the power of the roman authority america's not supposed to be that way we're supposed to have an investment in the idea that we have a right to speak freely that there's an opportunity for us to exchange ideas that ultimately you know we are uh individuals who are individuals uh first and that our allegiance is to a set of ideals right and yet you know none of that can ever truly you know or at least wholly nullify and shouldn't you know necessarily wholly nullify our deep cultural attachments and our historic and cultural memory not for black people or southerners or anybody else i think you know but here's where the hope comes in um i believe that while the civil rights movement and the nonviolent movement uh, did not fix everything that was institutionally or culturally wrong with America. I believe that the moral message of Martin Luther King Jr., not to mention uh, the work of Bayard Rustin and Septima Clark and, and John Lewis and the foot soldiers of of the civil rights movement uh, and and their allies, you know. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel and, and, and so many others, so many different colors, genuinely did succeed in moving the heart of Americans, black and white, north and south, rich and poor, 
in a way that made it possible for a person like me to even be born into the world. I mean, you know, I'm I'm the son and grandson of white Southerners, just as I'm the son and grandson of, you know, inner city African-Americans. And, you know, I, I can tell you that there was resistance to interracial marriage, right, in my family. There were old attitudes that were challenged by that. But by the time I got old enough, you know, everybody who, you know, my, my grandparents loved me and loved my brother more than more than anything in the world. The nonviolent movement was based on a spiritual premise. And it's the absence of a spiritual premise for the democratic experiment and the liberal project that I think is really the thing that we're suffering under today. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, was greatly inspired by, by Gandhi, but he referred to the spirit of nonviolence, especially in the early days of the movement, as being Christian love, as being the substance of what Christ exemplified in his life and in his death on the cross. King operated under the belief that love is a spiritual value that could affect profound social change, that love and goodwill requires us to speak to the best in one another while having the patience and the endurance to endure the vitriol and hatred from the other side long enough for us to be able to affect the change in the way that other people think and in the way that other people feel. Now, in our modern day, in our modern politics, people on the left and people on the right have no time for that because they feel like we should be entitled to the other side recognizing the fact that we are right because we are right. And therefore, we shouldn't have to go through the painstaking work of loving our enemies and dealing with the fact that they're going to be ignorant, they're going to be hateful, they're going to be contemptuous, they're going to try and hurt us, they're going to wrong us, and yet we should love them anyway long enough for us to be able to understand where they're coming from so we can speak to them in a way that can move them and build coalitions for change by operating in that way. But that is precisely what Dr. King did. In a secular society and in a religious society where in so much of, you know, Christian religious activity, in my view, has now kind of started to revolve around, you know, your prosperity gospel and sort of the politicization of the church and so on and so forth. The idea that the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, long suffering, right? Um, kindness, gentleness, etc. And the conservative traditions that are focused in on prudence, on temperance, on self-control, the teachings of Russell Kirk, the examples of Edmund Burke, right? John Adams, of the idea that a society such as ours can only exist if it's based on a religious foundation, but in that, chiefly because religion should emphasize the need for virtue in character, right? It's not about us having the sharpest debates. It's not about us having the facts and so forth. It's, it's really, facts are important, of course. I'm not, I'm not you know, downplaying that. But the answer to our current impasse is summoning the resources of character that make us strong enough to be able to hear where people are coming from in their pain, in their frustration, to forgive them for their sins, even while we yield no ground in speaking the truth, right? But finding a way to speak truth with love in a way to where we can reach the human conscience. Because you know what? If human nature is not available to being changed, if human nature is not available, is not is not, is not itself malleable in a way to where it responds to goodwill. If, if human beings, once touched by contempt, can never step back from it, 
then there is no hope for democracy because there was never any hope for humanity. Once we find ourselves in a bitter place, we just stay there. And yet that's not, you know, that's not the story of humanity at the end of the day. I mean, yes, it's the story of many, 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 many human beings. And we can refer to genocides and holocausts and and collectivist, you know, oppression. And, you know, I see Stalin on your bookshelf. I see Hitler. I see, I see all of that. And I acknowledge all of that history, you know. Um, but I think that if you don't mind me getting a little more, getting a little more religious, I think that, you know, guided, guided by the Holy Spirit, or however you might want to translate that in secular terminology, you know, I think that if we can, if we can de-emphasize just a little bit the idea that having the best arguments is how you reach people and lift up a little bit more the idea that honestly and effectively understanding people and signaling your goodwill to them, um, if we can lift up the idea that goodwill is ultimately the way that you reach people and that we should layer our arguments on top of that, if we just try that <laughs> as a movement, just try that, let's just lean into that a bit. Then we can follow in the in the uh, in the example of Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi and, and for that matter, goodness gracious, you know Roger Williams and Billy Graham and others, you know, and bringing out the best in our opponents. Um, it's going to take that sort of spiritual power to save democracy. And so much of the liberal project has been aimed, at, you know, and I'm a bit of a critic of liberalism myself, even small l, you know, liberalism has been aimed at kind of pushing out, you know, the transcendent basis of human relationships. Because as much as I too am here fighting to preserve the foundations of liberal democracy, you know, true conservative, uh, classical conservatism resists even, you know, some of the assumptions of that liberal tra tradition in as much as it stems from a starting point that says that, you know, mere reason is sufficient for man to govern himself. But without tapping into the deeper sort of spiritual nature of the human creature, even if you're not, you know, religious and, you know, in a super pious kind of way, and I, I'm not necessarily, I'm kind of am, kind of not, then we have sacrificed the tools by which we can cut through contempt. Uh, so, you know, that's where we have to find our hope. And maybe this is a moment that will force us a little bit uh, to reacquaint ourselves with the modes of being in society that allow us to tap into the spiritual power of love and goodwill and virtue, you know, uh, that can allow us to transcend divisions that otherwise are likely to remain intractable until we face the full repercussions of unguided wrath. And so that's what I'm hoping. So, I mean, I, I agree with you that I think um, until recently, religion was another common ground in in america um we were not nearly as religiously diverse um as we were ethnically and this was a protestant christian country for a long time overwhelmingly and it was a tolerant protestant christian country uh towards um you know jews and muslims and catholics actually less to catholics than to, to the former two for a long time um but it it strikes me again that it's it's very very difficult to recover i was actually reading um you mentioned Billy Graham, right? I was reading some of, of his uh, talks or speeches or sermons that he, he would give. Um, and it struck me how much he was talking to a Christian country that had sort of fallen away or backslid, um, but not to a non-religious country. You know, I, I'm an atheist myself, as I've, I've said multiple times on this podcast, but 
um, it really struck me like the, the audience he was talking to was a very different one. So even if they weren't, as you call it, pious, you know, sort of um, observant Christians, he was calling them to be more that way on a basis, a common basis of religious faith um, and common sort of. So I, I, I guess maybe that's um, where I worry that that we won't be able to have these conversations for very much longer because there obviously does come a point where people can no longer, um, as you say, step back from contempt. And and that tends to be when when really bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really do think our discourse is so overwhelmingly contemptuous. And I don't I don't see the the common basis for us to then step back from it. Uh, because perhaps they're in the decline of religion or but but simultaneously a decline of a kind of commitment to the American idea um, that we discussed before. I think those two tracks were really like the two pillars that held up such a diverse kind of groups of peoples that that all came together in America. Um, but I wanted I wanted to ask you one more question about about culture specifically because, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was was feeling foreign, um, quote unquote foreign, not literally foreign, um, in some of these spaces that had previously excluded Black Americans. But of course, they weren't foreign, right? They might have been excluded from those spaces. But what what people from other countries? I mean, half of what people from other countries think of as American culture very directly comes from Black America. Um, you know, it just, it's uh, just picking music, right? Uh, you're a musician, right? Uh, the, the uniquely American art forms in terms in within music mostly come from, or at least have their roots in black American. I know there's a, a whole history of, of whether or not people got credit and, and, and money for, for that. Um, but it's undeniable that American culture itself, even sort of generic mainstream American culture has taken an enormous amount, perhaps even a disproportionate amount of of its um, sort of commonality from the contributions of Black Americans. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I wonder how much, um, there's this Bill Burr bit uh, that he does where he was talking about some, you know, he's, he's obviously, he's making it into a joke, but he's talking to his Black wife about, um, there's a documentary about Elvis and and she's studying that about some of the, the appropriation. Right. And they have this back and forth. Um, and he says, well, why isn't it cultural appropriation? It's obviously a joke, right? Why isn't it cultural appropriation when you fly on a plane? Like, um, and and uh, he says, I know, I know. Because uh, if if Black people had had the same opportunities as white people, they also would have, you know, created the plane. And the end of the joke, not not to, to go on too long here, is he's like, but then you might not have created the music. Um, I, I wonder if there's some, some truth to... Uh, the idea that oppression and suffering, certainly not a new idea, produces great art um, and sort of a great cultural product and whether that itself can become um, a way of romanticizing your your identity as somebody who is oppressed <laughs> right? mm-hmm. in, in whatever form um, and whether that itself can be a barrier, whether individually or, or if we think about like groups of people, whether that can be um, that sort of romanticization of your position. And I, I, I don't think this is at all unique to, um, you know, black people in America it definitely is, is, um, you know, part of, part of my background too. the romanticization of, of sort of always being 
the the person who overcomes this and produces something beautiful as a result of that suffering. I mean, where how how do we balance? And this is a very I think this is a very universal question. You know, how do we balance honoring our our past, our family past, our culture, and the beautiful things that sometimes come out of that, um, while not becoming self-destructive, whether as individuals or as citizens. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, music um, was, I think, a tremendous part of what moved sort of the civil rights movement and provided the backdrop for the cultural shifts in a positive way that happened. I mean, it, it can cut both ways, right? If you illuminate, you know, the, the suffering of, of life, you don't have the blues. You don't really have country music. At least not, you know, not so much of what's powerful in, in country music. And yeah, music can cause us to sort of religiously and other things, religiously relive the episodes of pain and oppression in our individual and, and you know, and group and collective lives. But music is also a bridge by which we can find transcendent, you know, connections with one another. Jazz music is, you know, it's, it's an art form that has brought people together from across every cultural sort of, you know, racial, certainly starting point. Um, I mean, it's most explicitly sort of arises out of, out of black tradition and American life. But, you know, my father is a white jazz pianist. I should have said that up top, you know, um, and, uh, you know, he's a conservative leaning individual from the South who has loved Black culture from the very beginning of life. My grandfather, um, who would not have been directly immersed in Black life, uh, nevertheless sort of started off kind of pioneering this very crossover phenomenon of Black music into the mainstream of American music that you kind of, I think, sort of alluded to a little bit when you said, you know, some people didn't get paid. My father was a white record industry executive who did make sure Black artists got paid and so forth. Put all that aside, it's just to say that, you know, we we need these transcendent vehicles towards connections. It can't just be about debate. It's not even just about conversation. Music, culture, art should bring us together, right? Um, even as art should also be a vehicle for our being able to communicate our pains and our sufferings so we can be understood. It, it serves all of these, all of these functions. And so, you know, I think that, you know, as, as John Kennedy said, I mean, you know, there's um, artists are naturally sensitive to the injustices of society or should be, but there's a role for, for the artist in democracy. And, um, you know, I think that, um, that's that's a good thing. It's a good thing that that pain, even if the pain wasn't a good thing, it's a good thing that it produced the music because that too is part of what we ought to have in our toolkit now for social healing. But I guess, I guess the one thing I would say too is that, you know, we're not going to escape the consequences of the course that we're already on, right? And as there's nothing I can say that's going to say, that's going to, you know, point a clear path towards our having some, you know, version of an American future where somehow or other everybody just drops their arms from the campuses to, you know, the school board and, and for the Congress and, you know, the culture wars and so on and so forth. Uh, violence has been, in political violence even, has been a part of American life, you know, <laughs> just, you know, from one generation to the next. I mean, it's flared up more conspicuously in some eras than others, but, you know, people used to get beat on the floor of the Senate, right? Uh, that's part of what set the stage for the Civil War. The 60s was riddled with political assassinations. It's amazing we don't have more of that stuff 
these days, right? And yet, I am confident that ultimately, you know, um, those among us who are willing to, to, to love our neighbors and love our enemies, uh, right? You don't have to be a religious person to do that. Dr. King said there are, you know, there are non-believers in the nonviolent movement who nevertheless believed that there was power, you know, that there was power and love and goodwill to affect change in human beings, even if they didn't believe in the religious architecture that King did in articulating, you know, that, that position. Um, I think that we will succeed uh, in preserving the core of liberal democracy and making progress in our ability to understand each other so as to live with each other across the differences in our cultural expressions and our understandings of history so that we may preserve American democracy for the next generation and so that America can continue to be and in some ways become perhaps an even greater moral example to the rest of the world. Um, I have I have faith and I have confidence, you know, that the American project will endure to see that, uh, to see that mountaintop. We just have to travel through the valley that we're in right now. And, and, and even that gives us an opportunity, you know, you and me and everybody listening uh, to be a part of, you know, of, of, of the work of preserving that and advancing that that can make us feel good about how we spend our lives, you know, as we look over our shoulders, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, when you and I do our, our 30th podcast, you know, uh, <laughs> about how we came out of it. Okay. So, you know, that's my belief. It's, it's certainly a, a nice, uh, a nice image on, on top of that mountain that you're, you're painting for us. Um, and, and I hope it comes to pass, you know, maybe, uh, look, Great Awakenings are very much a part of, of American history and, and have definitely changed uh, the country. Maybe you, you've convinced me perhaps we should think about the civil rights era as as a, a type of Great Awakening uh, within our past. But uh, John Wood Jr., thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Uh, where can people find more of your work and participate in, in what you're trying to do here? Well, you can learn more about Braver Angels and become a member if you're interested in this project at braverangels.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, John R. Wood Jr. And of course, I'm host of the John Wood Jr. Show, as well as uh, co-host of the Brave Angels podcast. And you can find uh, each of those on YouTube and most of the places where you would get your podcasts. So, you know, I'm very happy, very honored to be here uh, with you, Inez. I really appreciate your time. Well, well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.